Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, My name is John Miklas. I'm the lead pastor here at CCC, and that's a new song for us, and I hope that those words kind of echo in your thoughts and in your mind. Uh, His, our sins, they are many, but His grace is much more. And that just kind of sits with you. I hope it does with me throughout this next week. Well, welcome to uh, the 1115 service. So, I don't know if you got to, thank you for that. We got a cheer up here in the front row. So, uh, I don't know if you got to sleep in or just relax a little bit morning, but hopefully you are here refreshed and uh, energized and excited to uh, be in God's place uh, with people who are seeking to know Him and follow Him and to listen to what He has to say to all of us this morning. When I was in high school, my friends and I, we were soccer players, and we followed an indoor soccer team known as the Baltimore Blast. And I remember one year they were getting into the playoffs, and as a group of high schoolers, we wanted to go to the game, but we couldn't get tickets. It was sold out, so we thought, hey, let's just go down the arena and see if we can find tickets. And so we went down to the arena, and uh, we walked around. Nobody was hawking tickets, but as we walked around the arena, um, one guy opened a door, and he said, hey, if each of you guys give me 10 bucks, it was like four of us, I'll let you guys in that door, and uh, just follow me. And we decided not to follow him. I think that was a good decision. A few years ago, my son, who I'm not quite sure it's a part of God's divine humor, um, allowed my son to be a Steelers fan. Um, I'm a Redskins fan. I've been all my life. But somehow my son became a Steelers. I still to this day don't know how God did that. But So a few years ago, my, uh, the Steelers were playing the Redskins in D.C. And I said to Daniel, let's get tickets and go to the game. So we did that. We had tickets for Section 317. And so uh, we're excited about going to the game. We got there early, and we got, walked in. We saw section 200, and we walked up the spiral staircase, and we got all the way to the top of section 400. We're like, where's section 300? We didn't know where it was. So we, we asked an usher. They're like, well, you go halfway down, and there's a door you go through. I'm like, that seems kind of odd. So we walked halfway down and walked through this door, and sure enough, there was section 300 and 302 and 304 and 301 and 5. And, and then as we kept walking, we started walking on carpet. I was like, uh, there's not usually carpet when I go to sporting events on the floor. And uh, we got a little bit further, and I said, Daniel, we're in the club box section. I said, just act like you belong and follow me. <laughs> so what do you think Daniel did? Do you think Daniel um, said to me, Dad, you really don't know what you're talking about. You've never been here before. I think we should ask someone. Do you think Daniel followed me? He followed me, of course. Why wouldn't he, you know? Um, so he followed me, and we got to section 317 and sat down in this nice box. We were the first ones there. And of course, as odds would have it, it filled up with Steeler fans, and my son is an outgoing kid, and so he's meeting all the Steelers fans and high-fiving them and finding out where they're from and how they became Steelers fans. And so we're sitting there watching the game, and about halfway through the game, I started scanning the other side of the stadium. I see 300, 305, 310, and I was like, oh, that's the 317 we bought tickets for. And I pointed it out to my son, and I said, just stay here, let's pretend like we belong, and we'll stay here till we get kicked out. What do you think my son said? No, Dad, we really need to go where we belong, or he followed me. He followed me, and we sat there the whole rest of the game, right in the corner of the end zone. It was absolutely great seats, watch plays coming down the end zone, and he was delighted that the Steelers won and the Redskins lost, and I was just glad for him because he's my son. That's the only reason I was glad for him. Um, But the question we want to ask this morning is this question, that's who do you follow? Who do you follow? And we're going to talk about throughout this morning. In those scenarios, I chose not to follow an individual in this situation I think might have gotten me in trouble, but my son chose to follow me in another scenario. And so I want you to ask yourself that question, who are you going to follow? You know, our culture says, follow your what? Heart. That's what our culture says. 
follow your heart. But I don't know about you, but if I follow my heart, um, it's probably not always going to work out real well because if I'm honest, there's times I'm selfish. There's times I'm preoccupied. There's times I'm distracted. I'm self-absorbed. And if I just follow my heart, I can tell you what's going to happen. Two things. One is somebody's going to get hurt, and the other is I'm going to create a mess that I'm going to have to deal with later if I just follow my heart. Here's another one. Maybe, maybe the person that you're going to follow is a trusted mentor. That's not a bad thing, is it? We talked about it over the last couple of weeks, who is a wise person, someone that you can follow. And, and often we want to follow someone who's been down the road before us. So if you're a new parent, if you're a young parent, you might be looking at a, at a parent that has some teenagers and say, what's life going to be like? And they're like, oh, you don't really want to know. But you're going to follow them anyways and try to learn from them, right? Or maybe, uh, maybe you're considering a career, and so you shadow someone in that career, and you say, what's this job really like, and what does it really involve, and is this something I would enjoy? And that's someone that you choose to follow. Or maybe you're considering a relationship, and uh, considering being married, and you look for someone that's got a great marriage, and you say, that's someone that I want to follow. Sometimes we follow, uh, I'll call a naive friend, naive friend. How many of you have had someone say, hey, why don't you come and do this with me? And halfway through, you realize it was a bad idea. How many of you had that experience? A few of us. How many of you are the friend getting someone in trouble with the bad idea? That's the other half of you, you know? But, but sometimes they'll invite you into something and you'll think, hey, that sounds like a good idea. It could be a lot of fun. And then halfway through, you have this overwhelming sense, this is not going to end well. But I chose to follow them, and in our naiveness, we usually continue down that path. One last thing that I thought that sometimes we follow, sometimes we follow a family tradition. Family tradition. One of the things that my wife and I teach couples in premarital counseling, we teach them about this concept called um, unwritten rules, unwritten commandments in families. We all have them. And you don't know what your unwritten commandments are in your family until someone shows up in your family and says, why do you do that? And you're like, that's just the way we do it. It's just how we do it. And I discovered this early on in our marriage as uh, my, when I was a kid growing up, my mom always was the first one up in the house and always had breakfast ready for us and, you know, before we headed off to school. And so I remember early in our marriage that I was up early, which I often am, and I went to my wife who's still in bed and I asked her if she would make me breakfast. And she informed me that I was quite capable of doing that myself. And <laughs> if I wanted to do it at a normal hour when normal people eat breakfast, she'd be more than happy to do that for me. Um, so, you know, are we going to follow those family traditions, those family rules that we have in our house? And so, I want you to think about and wrestle with this question, who am I going to follow? Who am I going to follow? And our series that we're going to be in over this next season is from the book of Mark, and it's entitled Simply Jesus. It's entitled Simply Jesus. And we're going to spend this fall looking at the first half of the book of Mark, and then this next winter and spring, we're going to have the second half leading up to His um, crucifixion and his resurrection. And maybe you're wondering, why Mark? Why did you choose Mark? Well, Mark is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus, four stories of the life of Jesus. And Mark is written in a present tense fashion, meaning there's a lot of words that have our action words immediately or soon after or quickly or right away. And so you see this action moving, boom, 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 and stuff is happening very quickly all throughout the book of Mark. And Mark wants to convey that this person named Jesus is not just a historical figure, but he's someone who's real. And he's someone who chose to break into human history at an amazing time and transform people's lives. 
Jesus is seen as a man of action moving from person to person to person to person. And I hope as you follow along with us that you'll see the actions of Jesus and wrestle with your choices and decisions say, are those my actions as I'm considering following Jesus? The book of Mark was written by, who do you think? Mark. Mark. No, not Matthew. It was written by Mark. But um, why? Who was Mark? Mark, second century historians tell us that Mark was a secretary and translator or scribe for Peter. You might be thinking, why did Peter need a scribe and a translator? Most of the people in the known world in that day were illiterate. They couldn't read, they couldn't write. Usually only the priests, the religious leaders, were the ones who were able to read and write. But the thing about Peter is Peter had a firsthand account of the life of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He slept with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He experienced the miracles of Jesus. And Peter wanted those events recorded. You say, how do we know Peter wanted those events recorded? Well, one of the events recorded was an event in which Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus confronted him about it. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty personal thing that I don't think anybody else would have been able to tell other than Peter himself. Peter is mentioned proportionally more than any of the disciples in the book of Mark. Peter shows up in every single account, and this gives us great confidence that Mark, that Peter is the eyewitness to Jesus that Mark records. And the book of Mark is divided in these two sections. The first section is the picture, the dark green circle with the crown in it. It describes Jesus' identity. Who was he? He was a king. That's who he was. The second half of the book describes Jesus in the lighter green circle, and that's a cross. That's his purpose, that he came to eventually die on a cross. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, you can follow along on your wireless device uh, as well on an app, uh, or you can grab the Bible in your seat and right in front of you and turn to page 812, page 812. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to jump in. It's page 812 on the Bible that's right there in front of you. And the gospel begins in a very abrupt way, begins in a very abrupt way. It simply says the beginning of the good news about Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us where Jesus came from, how did he get there, who his parents were, who his grandparents were. It doesn't tell us anything about Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that the people reading this account, reading this story, they already knew who he was, and so they didn't have to introduce him again. But he said he want to bring good news about Jesus. Good news was something that would usually be brought by the emperor. The emperor would show up and he would announce that he had defeated another territory. He had conquered some more land. He had brought back the spoils of war and maybe he was going to share that with the people. That was the good news that the emperor was going to bring. But this is a different kind of good news. This is good news about Jesus, the Messiah. You see, the Messiah was the deliverer the promised one. And the Jews were waiting for this promised one. They had been waiting hundreds of years for this promised one to come and rescue them from the Romans. The Romans were the government the govern, government that was in power in that day. And the Romans, they had put taxes on the Jewish people, and they allowed the local tax collectors to add more taxes. So there was a financial burden. There was some religious freedom, but there was an overwhelming financial burden. And there was this sense that we are not our own. Someone is ruling us. And they wanted to be freed from the Romans. So they were looking for a Messiah to free them. But someone else came, this one, named Jesus. And he wasn't quite who they were expecting. Before he showed up, he got announced um, as someone was coming. It says there in verse 2, I'll send my messenger 
ahead of you. Messenger was like the advanced team, the promotional team, sending out the press releases, making sure everybody knew. But it wasn't those things. It was a person. It was a person. And we meet this person a few verses later in verse 6. His name is John, and it tells us a little bit about him. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Well, that's kind of could look a little fancy. Um, and he had the nice accessory of a leather belt around his waist, you know, kind of accessorizing, you know, making himself look good. And then look at his diet, locusts and wild honey. Now, for those of you that have been on the Daniel diet, now you're on the keto diet, this is what's coming next, you know, the John the Baptist diet, you know, <laughs> locusts and wild honey. So if we have that in the lobby for you to munch on, you know, you know where it came from. But I mean, think about this guy. He was in the desert. He came out of the desert wearing this camel, camel jacket with this nice leather belt accessory, bug-eating guy with this message of just repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And that's not what the Jews were looking for. They wanted someone that was going to rally the troops. They wanted someone that was going to form a, an opposition. They wanted someone that was going to gather a militia so that they could take Rome down. That's what they wanted. And John said, no, there's a different message I have. There's a message of repentance. What's repentance? Repentance means you're going this way and you got to go this way. John says, there's some things you're doing. you got to change. And they said, what do we have to change? Describes them in Luke. One, one of them, he says, if you have two shirts and you don't share one, you need to share one. That's one of the ways you have to change. The tax collectors said, what do we have to do? They said, don't take any more money than you're supposed to. Take what you're supposed to, but don't add more on top for yourselves. The soldiers then showed up and said, what are we supposed to do? And they said, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely. So what John said is he said, you need to change. You need to change the way you're living. You need to be generous. You need to be honest. You need to be people of integrity. And he said, if you do that, if you're willing to change, then the next thing you need to do is you need to be baptized. Now, to us, in our setting here, in the context of our church, baptism, we would say that we would kind of, okay, they'll have a tank here, and we'll actually do this in a couple weeks, we'll have a tank here, and people that have chosen to follow Jesus and want to declare that publicly, they will go down in the water and be baptized. And so, that kind of makes sense, but it didn't make any sense to those people. They didn't know what baptism was. They're like, baptism? What's baptism? They, they knew about going down in water, but it was for a different purpose. You say, what was the purpose? Well, in the Jewish law, uh, they had a series of laws, and there were certain things that you had to do before you came into the place of worship, God's place. And one of the things you had to do is you had to be not only physically clean, but ceremonially clean. And there was a series of things that would happen that the law determined would make you unclean. One of the things was if you touched a dead animal, that would make you unclean. Another thing was when a woman would give birth to a child, she would, have to, she would be declared unclean, not because there's anything wrong with her, just from a ceremonial standpoint. And so outside the temples, they would have these carved into the rock, these cisterns that would hold water. They were called mikvahs, and they would go in. If you knew you were unclean, you would go in, you would squat down like this, and the water would cover you, and then you'd come out, and you would be clean. So you kind of self-cleansed, if you will, is what you did. But John was doing something different. He was inviting people down to the seashore. He was inviting them to gather. And this was going to be public. Everybody was going to see it. Verse 5, he goes on to say, the whole Judean countryside and all the people were out, went out to him. I mean, everybody was there. Everybody. 
I mean, imagine all of Reinholds or all of the Cocalico School District and Garden Spot and Mifflin, all these multiples, everybody's there. Imagine everybody's there and everybody's watching what's happened. And what's taking place is they're confessing their sins and being baptized in the Jordan River. And as this is happening, the crowd is obviously growing and swelling to a massive amount. And I think the people were starting to wonder, hey, is it coming? Is it coming? Man, look at all these people. Imagine if we are all armed. Imagine what we could do. Imagine maybe, we, maybe this is it. And it's like John knew what they were thinking because he goes on in verse 7 to say, no, 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 no. It's not me. It's not me. But after me, there's someone coming, and he's way more powerful than I am. You can't even imagine what he can do compared to what I can do. And then he says, he's so significant, so amazing, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. And you're like, who's he talking about? They're wondering, who is this guy that's coming? Who is the guy who's coming? As this happens, guess who shows up on the scene? Jesus. Jesus. So John's down by the seashore. He's down at the Jordan River, excuse me, at the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. There's massive crowds all around him as this is happening, as this is unfolding. And it says Jesus came from Nazareth where he lived down in Galilee, um, not a very far journey, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself wondering, did people know who Jesus was? Did, did anybody know who Jesus was? I mean, if you were in a crowd of people and, and you saw our president walk up, you would know who he was, you know. Or if you saw a, a, a sports star, you know, the, of a team that you follow, you would know who he was. Or maybe a music star or a, a star in the media, you would know who they were, right? But did anybody know who Jesus was? And the more I thought about it, I thought of what the prophet Isaiah said. And the prophet Isaiah said this, he said, he had no beauty or majesty to attract you to him. There was nothing outstanding or distinct about Jesus. He goes on to say, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Just an ordinary guy showing up like hundreds, maybe even thousands of other people to be baptized. And when he was baptized, notice what happens in verse 10. It says, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And you know, as I've thought about this event, in my mind it has kind of a Hollywood-ish feel. You know, Jesus is walking down to the water, and the crowds are parting as He's walking down to the water. And as He goes down to the water, the music is starting to build to a slow crescendo. You know, and then as the heavens are torn open and the dove comes down, this Charlton Heston-like voice comes out of heaven, you know, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. You know, I kind of envision it like that. But as I sat with this story and thought about, I'm not sure that's the way it happens. Instead, I think it's a very personal moment that the people reading this story are made aware of. But those who are on the scene, I'm not sure they had any idea. They say, what do you mean, John? What do you mean? Well, notice as it unfolds, Mark says, Jesus saw heaven being torn open. He, he doesn't say the heavens are being torn open as a pronouncement to everyone. Jesus 
saw the heavens being torn open, which would signify some divine interruption in what was taking place. Um, I think it's possible that Jesus is the only one that saw the heavens being opened. And then as he's coming up out of the water, there's a dove floating around, and it lands on his shoulder, and somebody says, oh, Kodak moment, take a picture, how cute, you know, a dove on his shoulder. Nobody else had that happen. But Jesus knew this was different, because Jesus knew that this dove represented the Holy Spirit. You see, before Jesus came to this earth, he existed with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this perfect relationship, this perfect oneness. There was never any sin. Nobody did anything wrong. And that's how they existed. And then they were separated for 30 years when God said, I need to rescue all of mankind. And so he says to his son, will you go and live among men as, man, as a man so that mankind can be rescued? And so when the Spirit shows up, it's like this divine reunion that nobody knows about except Jesus and the Spirit. And then a voice comes from heaven, and it says, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am greatly, greatly pleased. Jesus had not performed any miracles. Jesus had not healed anyone. Jesus had not done any teaching. Jesus had not rebuked the Pharisees. He had done none of this, and God says to him, you are my boy, I love you more than I can imagine. And I'm thrilled with you. What must it have been like for Jesus in all of his humanity to hear words of delight and words of love and words of affirmation? You know, one thing I know to be true is that every person longs for those things. We all long for words of delight. Hey, you're my son, you're my daughter. And as parents, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, we're incredibly proud to introduce, this is my son, this is my daughter. And every one of us wants to hear words of love. I love you. And we all want to hear words of affirmation. I am proud of you. I'm thrilled with you. I don't know about you, but these are words I long for. I long for. And I didn't realize how much I longed for them early on in my life. And as I got a little bit older, I realized I really wanted to hear these words. And then I tried to find ways to get other people to say these words to me, whether to tell me that they love me or, or tell me that they were proud of me or delighted with me. And as I would say these words to me, it was like a cup with a hole in the bottom. It would drain right out. And I'd go right back to the next person and try to get a little bit more and go right back to my parents and try to get that from them. And it would drain right out from the people that gave it to me and the people that God designed to give it to me, they never gave it to me. They never gave it to me. And as I began to face that and realize that's part of what God's design is for that to be part of us following His example and for parents to offer that to our kids, not because of what they've done, but just because of who they are. And as I faced that in my own journey and faced that sorrow, faced that grief, allowed myself to be angry at the sin of neglect that's God's design and it didn't happen, and find myself in a dark, lonely place, God showed up and met me. And I heard His voice 
speak to me in a silent way and say, you're my son and I love you. And even if you do nothing else the rest of your days, I am thrilled with you. When I heard those words from him, it closed up the bottom of that cup. It closed it up. And so instead of going to people demanding that they would offer that to me, demanding that they would offer that to me, my cup all of a sudden was getting filled up, and I could offer those words to others, and I could share those words to others, and I could bless the people in my life that God designed me to do that with as well. They're words that I believe every single one of us is designed to hear. Every single one of us. And for those that are parents, I hope that these are words that you are offering. No strings attached to the kids that God's blessed you with. And if your heart is empty like mine was and it hasn't ever heard them, one of my prayers for you is that in this next season as we walk through the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus, that you'll hear the still quiet whisper of God the Father into your heart saying those words. Because I see that's one of the reasons why I would invite anyone to consider following Jesus. Because when you choose to follow Jesus, you get a taste of enjoying the Father's delight in you. Enjoying the delight of the creator of the universe. In you. Not because of anything you have done. Simply because you are you. And while that sounds so powerful and inviting, if I said to you, following Jesus invites you to hear the Father's delight, you would walk out of this room and not be prepared for what comes next. Because in hearing this story, we would almost anticipate that Jesus would wrap his arms around John the Baptist and they would give one another a great big hug and Jesus would be giving people high fives and they'd come out of the water and there would be this, this massive feast and there would be a great celebration. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens. Look what Mark says happens. The Spirit sent him into the wilderness. The Spirit sent him into the wilderness. Now, we don't know what the wilderness, let me just tell you, the wilderness and woods is not the same. It's not the same. Um, anybody here been to, through Death Valley? Anybody here been through Death Valley? Just a couple. We've got a couple. Not many. Not many. Um, that's the closest thing in our country to, to the wilderness. The wilderness, there's no trees. There's no buildings. There's just sand. Lots and lots of sand. Mountains of sand. Valleys of sand. Lots. Of, it's barren. It's desolate. It's isolated. It's lonely. There's nothing in the wilderness, and that's where God sends him out. It's to the wilderness. Tells us again in verse 13, he's in the wilderness. We know that. We know he's in the wilderness. Why are you telling us again he's in the wilderness? Well, he's in the wilderness. And while there, what happens? He's tempted by Satan. So not only is in this place of barrenness and loneliness, but now the greatest struggles of his heart, the greatest struggles of his life are brought to bear on him, and he's invited to walk away from the Father. To abandon it all. And as if that wasn't enough, there's wild animals roaming around. And all he's got is his fashionable belt. That's all he's got. At least that I can figure. That's all he's got. But notice how Mark ends. Mark ends by reminding us that the angels 
are there with him. Now, I don't know about you, but the wilderness, tempted by Satan, wild animals, that does not sound like a day at Hershey Park, if you ask me. It really doesn't. It sounds, like, it sounds hard. It sounds painful. It sounds lonely. It sounds agonizing. But the truth is, if I ask most of, most of you, what percent of your life is about experiencing the Father's delight, and what percent of your life is about life being hard? Probably tip the scales on this side. But you're not alone. He made sure his angels, his messengers, were there with him. And so not only is following Jesus all about enjoying the Father's delight, but I think it's also about the reality that life is a struggle and God's going to be with you. Life is a struggle, but God is going to be with you. And as we dive into the book of Mark over these next few weeks, he's inviting you to come and follow him, to come and follow him. You say, John, I, I'm not sure why you're telling me this because I've already chosen to follow Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm, 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 ser- you know, it's, I'm all in there. He's inviting you to come and follow him in these next two months and see where he leads you. You might be saying, well, John, I I kind of get the invitation. I'm here on Sunday, but you don't know what I'm like when I'm at home. You don't know what I'm watching on Netflix or what I do with my buddies when nobody from church is around. And he's inviting you to follow him. And maybe someone brought you here this morning. You're not sure why they brought him or you're not sure how you got here. You're not so sure about the whole God thing. He's inviting you to follow him. Not to follow your heart, not to follow your friends, not to follow a family tradition, not to follow your wallet or your career, but to follow Him. And as you think about following Jesus, as you think about this adventure of following Him, um, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? When you think about following Jesus, does it sound scary? Does it sound overwhelming. They sound frightening. Are you thinking, I don't know if I trust Jesus? Um, Does it sound like the invitation you've been waiting for for a long, long time? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads, and and as you do, um, just want to give you a moment to talk to God real quickly before we close this morning and As I often say, tell God where you're at. He knows. He knows. Just tell Him where you're at. If you're serious about following Him, can you tell Him that? I'm I'm pretty serious about this, God. I don't know what it's going to mean, but I'm serious about it. If you're not sure, and you're a bit uncertain because of what this might look like, be honest with your heart before Him. And even if you don't even know You're not sure about this God thing, this faith thing, this Jesus thing. Just tell him that. God, you know where each one of us is at today. You know our struggles. Um, You know our heart. You know those of us that are longing to hear the Father's delight. 
and we've tried all kinds of other ways to experience that. God, you know those that life right now is really, really hard, and it doesn't feel like there's anybody attending to them. God, I just ask that wherever we are, that we can, first of all, be honest with you, and then second of all, that we can sit with and wrap our hearts and minds around this invitation to follow you. And um, be willing to take a step of faith because that's what it is. To say, what would it look like for me to follow a man named Jesus who came to this earth, lived, died, rose from the dead, and now is alive again? What would it look like to follow him? God, make that our heart's longing and our heart's desire, not only this day, but throughout this week. In your name we pray.